Hello, I'm Matt Baum, and welcome to The Sewers of Paris. We're on a podcast search for entertainment that changed queer people's lives. The topic this week, Dune, Alanis Morissette, and Trick. For this week's episode, the recent release of Dune Part 2 reminded me of a Sewers of Paris episode from 2018, where my guest Ryan and I talked about the grip that fear can have on a person's mind. Ryan grew up in a tough environment, where his parents subjected him to devastating homophobia and dangerous ex-gay treatments. After Ryan legally emancipated himself from his family, what followed was a period of homelessness and addiction that took him years to overcome. But overcome he did, and now, in 2024, he's working as a civil rights attorney in Los Angeles. We originally recorded this conversation back in 2018, during a thunderstorm in Colorado, so you'll hear some noise of rain in the background and a few rolls of thunder that were oddly well-timed for Ryan's story. We'll have that conversation in a minute. First, a couple quick announcements, starting with the reminder that I've got a weekly newsletter about LGBTQ plus entertainment history. You can sign up for that at mattbaum.com. Also, check out my YouTube channel for videos about the making of iconic pop culture. I just released a new video about the movie Rebel Without a Cause. That's at youtube.com slash mattbaum. And I've got a video coming your way in March about the movie Victim. Also, I hope you'll join me for weekly live streams over on Twitch every Sunday afternoon. That's at twitch.tv slash mattbaum. And if you haven't yet, take a look at my book about the history of queer characters on American sitcoms, Hi Honey, I'm Homo. It's available now wherever books are sold. Go to gaysitcoms.com for details and to get a signed copy. Big thanks to everybody who makes this show possible on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash mattbaum to support the series of Paris and get patron-exclusive benefits. Now, here's my 2018 conversation with Ryan. Welcome to the Sewers of Paris. I'm Matt Baum. I'm joined by Ryan Kendall. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Thank you for having me. Tell me about the entertainment that changed your life. You know, I grew up in a very conservative family in Colorado Springs, Colorado, a fundamentalist evangelical family, right? And that's an environment where you have very, you know, prescribed um, ideological boundaries of what you're allowed to think, how you're allowed to feel. What you're allowed to be. Yeah, exactly. But interestingly enough, even though we had kind of these rigid religious notions in my family, uh, our media wasn't censored. So my parents never really paid attention to what books I read or what music I listened to. Um, And those became venues into other worlds. Uh, You know, I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy as a kid. You know, at some point I realized that I was gay. And as a young gay man, you kind of feel almost walled inside of yourself, right? You have a secret that no one knows about. Um, and so you're looking for kind of a lot of escape from that pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sci-fi and fantasy certainly give you that, right? You can go to different worlds. You can explore new different things. Uh, you can, you know, uh, hang out with people who have real magic, which was always fun. Uh, and in terms of my identity, I would say Frederick Pohl um, and the uh, Gateway series was, was very important. It's a sci-fi fantasy book. I haven't read it in series. I haven't read it in many, many years. Uh, but the main character is bisexual. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he comes out. And it's, it's this kind of graphic tale where he's talking to a robot psychologist about how his mom used to take his temperature uh, with, a, with an anal thermometer. And, and the robot psychologist realizes that he's dealing with kind of like repressed bisexuality. But that was the first time I had encountered someone who looked like me um, in a book or a TV show. I mean, you have to keep in mind, I'm 32. So growing up, there was no representation of LGBT people in the media. I mean, we had Ellen in, what, 96. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, it was kind of this empty, barren wasteland where there was no one who who identified like me. And what was so interesting about encountering this character in the book was kind of that first thought, like, oh, my God, 
there are people like me out there. I am not the only one. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, some of it was more directly gay-themed, but that was one of the things about, you know, science fiction in particular, was you could explore, and what, what was so exciting about the genre, and, and still can be exciting about the genre, is that you can explore, you know, things that are intentionally strange or different or unusual, and it's acceptable because that's the setting, right? You can have these... these, these um, unauthorized, you know, thoughts. I mean, we would normally never do some of the stuff that you do in science fiction, but it's okay because mm -hmm. it's science fiction. So, yeah, um, from there, um, after that character, I actually do remember um, using uh, the public library for subversive purposes, mm -hmm. uh, and I checked out a few books. I checked out, uh, there's a book I remember called What I Know Now, and it was a, an LGBT children's book, right, for young LGBT teens. Uh, and my parents had no idea what it was. They never, I mean, to this day, they still don't, my, my mother doesn't know the story. Um, and it was about this, this young man who had a babysitter who was a gay male and kind of his, uh, you know, identity and awakening process. So that was very important to me too, because once again, I didn't have anything to identify with in my very conservative Christian family. So I was able to start exploring my identity through books like this. And then I think I got a book called Boy Culture and then some anthologies. Um, and, and that was kind of my first um, entry into LGBT identity. So tell me about the world that you were growing up in, especially in contrast to the world that you're like getting into through these books. Uh, I mean, it's, it's almost hard to go back and think of all the like crazy things that we believe but i mean it was just a it was a it was a very fundamentalist family right i mean evolution was a lie the earth was six to ten thousand years old you know um uh, there were very defined gender roles. You know, the father went out and was the breadwinner. My mother always kind of had like a diminutive job. She was a teacher, like a substitute teacher. So she was a stay-at-home mom, which is an important job, but it's also a very prescribed mm. gender role. Um, and, you know, we were just expected to operate within that world. You know, what my parents said was, you know, the law of God. It came down from Jesus himself. Um, and it's a very narrow world where you're only allowed to think certain thoughts um, and it's not that you don't know that there are thoughts that you can't think. It's that the world is so self-contained, you don't know that there are other things that you can experience and think. And that's why this, this entertainment was so important, because it showed me, like, oh, there is something behind the curtain, right? Mm -hmm. there, there, there is a world of gay people. There is a world of, you know, um, I remember listening to Alanis Morissette as, as one of my first, like, I, <laughs> like there's a roll of thunder as you mentioned Alanis. <laughs> um, Alanis Morissette was it was a you know jagged little pill. This is so sad. Was such an important album in my life because listening to it, I could I, for the first time I realized, oh wait, you're allowed to be angry about things, right? So it hadn't even dawned on me that that I could be angry or upset or or disobey authority. feel like there's this sort of conflict between the person that you were for everybody else and then the person that you could be when you were in these worlds? No, I don't think so, because I think the way I identified it with was the, the, the Ryan inside these worlds was the real Ryan, right? Mm -hmm. that, that I was just being, you know, so there, so there wasn't any, you know, I, I didn't feel any tension between the two. It was more like 
attention that people didn't know the real Ryan, that mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to be the real Ryan yet. Was there a point where you started um, having the freedom to be who you really wanted to be, the, the person that you really wanted to be outside of just the books? Well, I mean, there is this, this long story. So at some point, entertainment, although of a more adult variety, um, did uh, kind of play a role in my coming out story. And I, you know, was online like every other, you know, young male teen. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually my parents found some some of my online activities through AOL, of course. AOL, we used to say, did more to out young gay teens <laughs> than, than anything else in the world. Uh, and my journal. And, um, you know, I, I my parents sent me to conversion therapy for a couple of years to make me straight. And I filed dependency neglect charges against them. And it's a whole long story that, that people can look up. Um, but eventually I did create a space where I could be who I was, where I could be authentic. Um, and, and that was a wonderful experience. But the beginning of that journey of self-realization really starts with these, these books and these songs um, that helped me you know, start to form my own identity and start thinking for myself. I remember just thinking how novel it was. Mm -hmm. Because before I didn't think I was allowed to be angry. I mean, you're supposed to be very respectful of your elders, you know, your, your, your emotional... Um, your emotional spectrum is, is supposed to be like happy because God is great, happy because you love your parents, obedient. Um, and it was liberating to realize that I could be angry about things. And then I, I began to think things like, well, maybe anger can be justified. Like maybe not only can you be angry, but maybe anger can be a good thing. Maybe maybe you're you're supposed to be angry about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that that uh, you know, jacket little pill, Alanis Morissette. Look what she started. <laughs> Did you have a social circle of other nerds that you could be nerdy with? Um, yeah, I had. I, I, I went to private Christian schools my entire life, um, and I was I was always a nerd. So my friends were were kind of nerds. I mean, I remember um, one of the uh, Caitlin Clark, who's still a friend of mine. We would uh, talk on and on about uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series mm -hmm. and like the eight hundred page books. Uh, and we would trade them back and forth, and you know, and so I would go to this mom and pop bookstore run by this old wizened guy um, across from uh, a Safeway or King Supers, and he would pick out the science fiction books I would read, uh, and he would recommend, you know, oh well, let's go see what we have. And so I read a whole bunch of really fantastic books, um, you know, Hellstrom's Hive, um, uh, which is also known as Project Four Fifty One. Um, I mean, all the Dune books, of course. Only the first one was good. So you were you were consuming all these books, and you had some people that you could share it with. Um, but did you have people that you could share that you were gay with? No, I mean it, it was a very closed off world. Um, and when I did come out, uh, I did I lost most of those friends. Right? right. Did you buy in at all to the the ex gay? I, I, I don't know. I, you know, people call it therapy, and I hate to use the term therapy with that stuff. But I mean, I never did. It was something I was subjected to. Right. Yeah. I mean, this was you know, when you're. 14, 15 years old, at least in a, you know, I realize that there are kids who misbehave and talk back to their parents and, and you know, do all sorts of things that their parents don't want, to, want them to do. I didn't come from that world, right? I mean, we obeyed our parents. We did what they wanted us to do. So when I was a young teen, my parents just said, you know, you're going to go to this therapy. I mean, I never really thought that it was something that worked or was necessary. I never thought that being gay was really something that could change. Um, and here I kind of use the tools I gained from media. So for instance, um, that permission to be angry, right? Eventually that became uh, 
an important tool for me, the ability to, to, to embrace my own emotions and to say, no, conversion therapy is a terrible thing. No one should be subjected to it. I shouldn't be subjected to it. Um, and, and go through the process of, of removing myself from that situation. Mm -hmm. So some of the emotional skills I learned from that exposure to, to different types of entertainment, that ability to kind of be your own person, to, to do what you think is right, to, um, to experience your own emotions and, and accept them as real and to act on them. Uh, that certainly came from the identity formation I went through through reading these sci-fi books and listening to, to Alanis Morissette. Mm -hmm. So you had like that, you had you the real Ryan that you could just hold on to and be like, no, I, I know, I know who I am. I don't need to. Absolutely, and that's it's interesting that you say that because that was something that when I when I testified in the Prop A trial, uh, Terry Stewart was then the chief deputy city attorney. She said, "You have a very strong sense of self," um, and that's how I know that how you got through all these experiences mm -hmm. was because of that sense of self. So yeah, it did help me build like an inner core of, of identity. Unfortunately, that identity was, you know, for the beginning of my life about how I was different than everyone else. Right. I mean, I had to go through hundreds of books before I came across someone like me, you mm -hmm. know, and being the person, the type of person who would read hundreds of books was not like something that would make you popular in any of the schools that I went to as a, as a young kid. Um, so all of that was about how I was different than other people. So how did you start finding places where you weren't the one different one? Well, after I came out, uh, particularly in the late 90s, uh, there were, you know, like a, a set of movies that you had to watch. Um, uh, you know, uh, Lonely Hearts Club. I can't, I, I can't even remember them all. You might have to help me with some of these. What are the... Oh, well, there was Jeffrey. There was Jeffrey. There was In-N-Out. Mm -hmm. There was Trick. Trick, yes. There was, um, I want to say... Not go. It was a rave movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there are a bunch of them. And so, this is just something I take for granted. But I don't think maybe heterosexual people or cisgender people really take this for granted. But there, there was this kind of like lack of or, or desperation for community, and not just community, but but common shared culture, right? And so, you know, every young gay male watched these movies when I was when I was younger. I mean, we all watched But I'm a Cheerleader. We mm -hmm. all, <laughs> you, you, you know, we all started listening to, to, to certain artists, um, Tori Amos, and, you know, I mean, and I think that's because we were trying to find ways to connect through um, not just our identities, but through the culture we consumed um, and through entertainment, right? That was, that was one of the ways that we could, you know, kind of reach out to each other and, you know, have you know, movie groups and watch movies together or we talk about them or we trade them and exchange them um, and then at the same time while this was going on you know I was 16 in 1999 so this very much tracks with the explosion of LGBT representation in the media right at some point we have Will and Grace uh, you know we had Ellen coming out we had I remember I was 18 years old Queer as Folk was mm -hmm. the I, I mean I remember when Brokeback Mountain was like a, the release of Brokeback Mountain was a civil rights moment Right. I mean, and that seems silly now to think about it, but it just goes to show you how important uh, these media representations of LGBT people are. But yeah, so we increasingly we were able to participate in gay culture through media. Uh, to Wong Fu, that's for everything. Mm -hmm. Newmar. Um, I, I've even watched Priscilla, um, and so these were great things. And I don't. Which, what's really interesting is I don't consume LGBT media so much anymore. Right. I, I don't watch gay movies. Uh, although I have a couple favorites, um, what are your favorites? Uh, I, there's this. I think it's Argentinian. I could be wrong about that, but a South American movie called Plan B. 
which is a very sweet love story. Oddly titled for, for the American market, though, because Plan B is the, uh, the morning after pill. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think it, it, but it was on Netflix for a long time. And it's about this, these two straight guys who fall in love together. And it's a very long, very slow, very boring movie. And I love it. It's just one of the things that I love. So these were very important to me when I was younger. But now, um, as an adult, um, I don't really, th- I don't use them. I mean, my identity is already formed. So I don't, I, don't, I don't need them in quite the same way. You know, I grew up in Colorado Springs. I'm sure I've said that, but it was a very, very conservative, very oppressive environment, and so all the gay people kind of knew each other, right? Mm. Like, like if you were 18 and gay, you knew all the other 18 year old gay guys in, in Colorado Springs, and so you know, we kind of traded this stuff back and forth. So there was a point where you you just had to separate yourself from your family. Yeah, that's correct. And. Where did you, did you go, did you have some place to go to where there were people who were ready to accept you that was a better environment? Oh, no, I, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, literally shortly after I turned 16, uh, ran away from home. I had uh, friends take me in for a couple weeks, uh, and then I invoked uh, the court process and the Colorado Department of Human Services for housing. So for a while, I was at my brother's house when he wasn't there, and then I was with my mom's first husband, but it was certainly a, 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 in a, not a stable environment mm. at that time. How long did that go on? Oh, well, I mean, let's see. Um, I was eventually placed with my mother's first husband. I was 16 years old, but then my life kind of exploded, right? And so I, I, I found a quote-unquote stable place to live, but one of the problems of growing up in a repressive environment is that when you're exposed to any kind of sign, sort of taste of freedom, um, you go a little overboard with it, and that's certainly the case with me. So though I had a somewhat stable environment, I was going to clubs in Denver, we'd drive an hour to go to Tracks 2000 in Denver, or I would go to the uh, Hide and Seek in Colorado Springs. I remember when you could go to a gay bar at the age of 16. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we would get in earlier. Um, and uh, so, you know, the damage was already done at that point. Just having to separate from my family and losing that environment was enough to, to, to make sure that it would take me a long time to get back to normal. Who are the other gay people who you were surrounding yourself with at that time? Oh wow! This is a uh, this is. I mean, well, first of all, um, as every sixteen-year-old gay boy knows, uh, 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 you have a harem of women. Yeah. Uh, and so I had my harem of women, um, and then oh, I, the boys I can't even think about. I mean, nor do I want to name any. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, just people, none of whom I know now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, part of that, like, well, I'm getting out into the world. I guess this is what gay life looks like. Well, exactly, and yeah. Um, and that's one of the things, you you know, um, we kind of have a delayed identity formation process because finally when we come out, then then you go and for a long time there was kind of kind of a, a cliche gay culture, right? It was all about drinking and drugs at bars mm-hmm. for the most part or bathhouses and things like that. Um, and so you go out and you explore, you know, what it means to live in gay culture. I think that's probably changing now. I think we're, we're, we're more mainstream now. And so I think you can grow up and have maybe a more normal experience where you don't have to go explore this culture that's separated this other. Um, but, you know, for me, that's very much, you know, I was thrust into a whole different world. Were there, of the movies that you were watching then, the, like, the picture of what it is to be a gay man that you were getting, were there particular characters that, that resonated with you? I mean, all of them were bad. I, I guess that's why I don't like... <laughs> it's unfortunate, yeah, but yeah. I, I, I guess that's why I don't like LGBT uh, 
themed movies from that era. Maybe mm-hmm. they'll be better going forward. You know, Longtime Companion was this fav- famous movie from probably the late 80s or the early 90s about the HIV-AIDS crisis. Um, and it was it was a, a movie where you sat around for two and a half hours and watched people die. I mean, it was just a, it was a terrible representation of what it meant to be LGBT. You know, uh, the Lonely Hearts Club was about a bunch of you know sad single guys. I mean, so and then the other representations. So you're either dying or you're going to get killed. I mean, the gay character getting killed is kind of a trope that's gone on forever and ever. Um, or you were very campy, uh, flamboyant. So there there weren't a lot of you know great images of what it meant to be mm. you know a gay man. I had to kind of figure that out on my own. How'd you do that? Well, I mean, you just live one day at a time. <laughs> you know, I've never really had a problem with being me. It's it's the way God made me. But no, I mean, it's it's a great point. Um, for the longest time, all the representations of LGBT people were quite negative. Uh, and I think it's up until probably uh, Will and Grace that we don't see start seeing positive images of LGBT people. And even those are problematic. It's It's kind of weird to reflect on how... You know, one TV show has made such an impact on mm-hmm. our issues. I mean, that's 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 strange. I don't know if there are a lot of communities. I mean, maybe perhaps African Americans who look back and say, like, "Oh, the Cosby Show, like that was a big deal for us." But it's just it's just a weird position to be to be put in, almost to to, to give such power to these shows. And now, since Will and Grace, we have, I mean, this de rigueur that there must be a gay character in in every show, and mm-hmm. and all of these representations are problematic still to this day. But it's becoming more frequent for there to be, you know, people who look like me. Now that I don't have any time to watch TV or movies, <laughs> um, they, there are. Oh, you know, you know, one of the other things. I, I grew up in Law and Order. Oh, uh, I'm a huge Law and Order fan. I'm okay. still a huge Law and Order fan, and I, I watch way too much Law and Order. It's like my comfort when I'm doing mm-hmm. something. I have it in the background, um, and we can talk about LGBT characters in Law and Order because it's awful. I mean. They're being killed after being high on drugs, or you know, they're arguing against marriage equality. I mean, all of the representations. In fact, I think something that you might want to do uh, just for for fun is to go back ten years and watch the representations of LGBT people in Law and Order. It's really bad. And what's so funny about it is the show was probably being progressive at the time. But yeah, so so that's 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 the world where I grew up in is is you know all these terrible representations of gay men. Um, do you think that we have a kind of a healthier representation of gay men and lesbians now? I guess. I mean, it feels like it's more diverse. Yeah. Um, so there's more options and there's more likelihood that you're going to see somebody who's like, oh, that's me. And But, you know, also I feel like, um, you know, I live in a gay bubble where, yeah. you know, it's very comfortable to be gay in Seattle or L.A. or San Francisco. Or Denver. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I, even in those spaces, I navigate in a very gay bubble within a bubble. Yeah. You know, I just came back from Mr. International Leather where, <laughs> you know, the, the big controversy is how gay is too gay. Oh, God. You know, so, <laughs> um, but so. Well, and I think that's, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting point. And I, I think it goes to these, you know, these gay themed movies and these characters and the, the, this music. Because we had to create a world where being gay was okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't. We did. Many of us did not have that. Um, and I think there are probably places in the country where it's still not okay to be gay. But we both operate in pretty gay bubbles, and, and so I don't think maybe we question our, our media consumption as much anymore because yeah. it's just just expected, right? This is the kind of stuff we watch, and we don't think about it anymore. What was it about Law and Order that you liked? 
I like the courtroom drama. I mean, this is I'm, I'm going to law school in the fall, so thank God. Not because of Law and Order. Sure, sure. <laughs> but I mean, Jack McCoy was a great character. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just a. He, Tell me about him. Uh, I mean, he's this. I mean, everyone who knows who Jack McCoy is, he's this middle-aged prosecutor who's very zealous and very um, uh, matter-of-fact. Uh, I think no BS is the polite way of saying it. Uh, and I always always enjoyed that about him. I always enjoyed that he was um, very effective at what he did. One of my classes at school, they said, uh, every good story needs to begin with a death. And Law and Order is the epitome of that. I mean, <laughs> not not SVU, not, not, not Criminal Intent, not any of the spinoffs. But the first show, almost every episode, they start with someone being killed. And, and that's the way it went. And I think something's comforting about police dramas not because they don't ask you to do too much right mm-hmm. i mean i mean they're they're just very formulaic and they're, they're, there's something soothing about it that that you know first you're going to see the investigation and then you're going to see the prosecution and then there's going to be some drama i mean it's it's all but it's it's like a safety blanket mm-hmm. this is a story i know doesn't matter which one i watch they all make me feel very comfortable and safe. I was just going to say, was it comforting? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is comforting, and it, and I can also admit to nerdily using The West Wing for that same thing. Huh. I watched The West Wing like three times back to back my last semester at Columbia while I was doing homework. It was just, it was just comforting. I guess there's something safe about entertainment that meets our expectations, but that's probably also why American media is so dull. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, it's not particularly challenging. No, and I mean, that's why there's a difference between um, European films, and I actually don't know a lot of gay European films, um, but they don't they do not do happy endings in Europe so mm-hmm. well, um, which is great, because it, it makes the entertainment much more conflicted. And, and was that comforting quality, that there was a process and a system, and that everyone had sort of a place where they, you know, a, a, a function within that world? Yeah, it might have. It, it, it was a world where everything had a reason and a, and a purpose and a place, like you said, uh, at a time in my life where very few things had a place and a purpose. So I, I probably saw the kind of like coherent world um, as almost akin to the coherent world that I had just come from. And mm. So that was probably comforting, yeah. When did things start coming back together to you? Because I know you had that sort of chaotic, like, I'm going to go out and explore as much as I can. You know, never. Um, <laughs> you know, I uh, I spent, um, you know, when I was, let's see, how old was I? 20, let's see, 11 years ago, I would have been 21. Shortly mm-hmm. before I turned 21, I moved to Denver. And this was after the wreckage of coming out and going to conversion therapy and essentially divorcing my parents. And I started working horrible jobs. You know, I worked at the subway down on Broadway, if we drive by down down by there later, you know, making minimum wage. It was like five fifteen an hour. Uh, and from there, I ended up, you know, working my way into a job with the Denver Police Department. Uh, and that was a very, you know, it was a boring job, but it was very secure, good benefits, good money. And from there, I got involved in the Prop 8 case. I mean, I went out to testify in the Prop 8 case. How did that happen? Uh, so I was appointed to the Denver GLBT Commission when I was 24 years old by... Uh, then Mayor Hickenlooper, who's now Governor Hickenlooper, mm-hmm. and I just started doing my thing. Um, I, I, you know, started doing direct actions with Marriage Equality USA and getting involved on the commission. What kind of actions? Uh, you know, we would do very regularly. We would do um, marriage counter protests um, at the Denver Clerk and Recorder's office. 
on, on you know, um, February 14th or uh, around surrounding the, you know, when Prop 8 happened, we did a few after that. Um, so I did protests, you know, things like that. And I eventually started telling my story about conversion therapy and I came to know Stuart Gaffney. Mm-hmm. And he got to hear my story a little bit. and He's an activist in San Francisco. Yes. He and his husband, John, are fantastic human beings and activists on marriage equality. Um, and they were plaintiffs in in remarriage. So in May 2008, the California Supreme Court decided uh, that, um, that marriage equality was the law of the land. And in November of that year, Proposition 8 was passed, which removed that right. And then a federal challenge was launched by Ted Olson and David Boyce. And during this time... Um, I met Stuart and John, and my activism had kind of kicked into high gear. Stuart and John got to know my story, and so when the lawsuit was pending against Proposition 8, um, they told the city and county of San Francisco about me, and the city and county of San Francisco decided to interview me as a possible witness. Um, And then, you know, I went on and testified in that case about my experience with conversion therapy, and from there I have gone on to um, champion bans against conversion therapy, helping them be passed in California and New Jersey, and just last week, I believe, I uh, helped Senator or Representative Ted Lieu introduce the first federal conversion therapy ban in history. It's pretty remarkable, and I think it's a lot of things. Uh, something that a lot of people didn't have on their radar that there was going to be this conversion, th- this big like momentum behind putting a stop to this. It's quite satisfying. For years, there was no one working on conversion therapy. No one cared. I mean, but I'm a cheerleader is an iconic movie about conversion therapy, but also no one took it seriously. Whenever people thought, for years, whenever people would talk about conversion therapy, they'd talk about, but I'm a cheerleader, as though that were something that would only happen in such a farcical movie, um, instead of being a real thing that happens um, nowadays. So it's been very satisfying to see that my work on that has gone so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, you know, it used to be like, me and Truth Wins Out were the only two people talking about conversion therapy. So I testified in the Prop 8 case, that got people's attention to a certain extent, um, and then we've been able to move forward, and now the National Center for Lesbian Rights has this fantastic campaign called the Born Perfect Campaign, which seeks to uh, uh, end conversion therapy in the United States within five years. Um, so it's been very interesting to see, you know, a lot of times activists complain about marriage equality advocacy, right? We're more than marriage. Well, here's an issue that's getting a lot of attention that's not marriage, Mm -hmm. um, but also very important. Uh, And I I really think that there are bigger things to come. I think that this is going to be an issue that we we are absolutely able to address within the next few years. Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, when you think about, like, just, it's another one of those sea change things. It's like, just so fast this has happened. Just so fast, right, absolutely. Um, And and now, when people think of conversion therapy, they they don't talk about, but I'm a cheerleader. Mm -hmm. Uh, They talk about the stories of other survivors that they've heard, or they're shocked that this practice still exists. Um, And that was one instance in which media was, LGBT-themed media was particularly unhelpful. That movie was just, and I watched it, I enjoyed it. But people pigeonholed this issue as that movie, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was problematic because it helped them not take it seriously. Right, it's a wacky zany kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. like, oh, it's a, it, this isn't real. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. But now they care. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me, so you got involved in working for the police department here, um, and you're just kind of working, just a, a kind of a perfunctory, like okay, it's just a job kind of job. Right? Yeah. Um, and then at one point, were you like, okay, I want to go someplace with this? It's a strange question. Uh, not a strange question. Um, 
I mean, if you had told me years ago that I'd end up where I am now, it's not like I planned this all out. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to make a difference. I mean, I was dead set on doing whatever I could on conversion therapy at a pretty young age because I knew how much it had harmed me. Um, and driving away from uh, Joseph Nicolosi, who used to be the executive director of NARTH, the leading conversion therapy organization, driving away from his office during one of my last in-person sessions, I thought to myself, as a 16-year-old kid, I'll be back one day, and you won't like it when I am. So I, as soon as I got involved in the commission, conversion therapy is something that I started doing something about. You know, I didn't exactly plan to testify in the Prop 8 case or help pass these bans or, or help introduce this legislation. Um, and so all of that's been as equally chaotic and unexpected as perhaps as, as what I went through when I was struggling with my family, right? There's, there's never been like a calm period. It was terrible things with my family, and then all this, this, you know, success with activism. It's it's mm-hmm. one of those, it's one of those things. My life divides in two pieces. The first part of it generally feels it felt like I was failing all the time, right? I was failing to go to college. I was failing to survive. I was, you know, and then as soon as I started being an activist, I just met with success the entire time. So it's it's kind of a very weird division between the two. And tell me, as you're doing the activism, tell me about what's happening with your career. Oh, well, you know, I just graduated from college last year from Columbia University. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, what did you study? I studied political science, mm-hmm. and, which is, some people say, not a real subject. <laughs> I reserve judgment. Um, and I will be starting uh, law school in the fall at UCLA. That's great. Yeah. And I know you say, like, not because of law and order, but um, I think there's maybe a common thread there where, like, you're, you're, the appeal of having a system where everyone's doing their job and, like, there's... There's rules. There, there's rules, but also, I mean, I think my desire to become a lawyer uh, stems more from my activism than, mm. than from, from, from media like that. I've seen a lot of amazing attorneys uh, really change the world. And, you know, Jack McCoy was always trying to do the right thing, right? He, he, he didn't always do the right thing, but he always wanted to do the right thing. Um, but I think seeing attorneys in action um, is what has motivated me to become a lawyer. I mean, I, I plan on going into public interest law. Um, so I don't plan on making a, a bunch of money, but it's the opportunity to continue opposing injustice um, that really drives me. Mm. So when you think about like the the picture of, of what a gay man was that you were getting when you were a kid, and you're reading these books, and you're like, oh, there's the one, there's the one bisexual character. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, do you still think of yourself as? Do you still identify with those characters that you identified with when you were young? No, I mean, not so much anymore. I think, as we talked about earlier, we have a much richer um, representation of what it means to be gay now. And so we don't have to rely on those old characters anymore to find ourselves in. Um, and now that we've you know, gone mainstream in a way, I think that there isn't really a way that LGBT people look anymore. You don't have to look, they just look like people, right? And so you, you can kind of aspire to be anything or do anything. Um, and that's a great thing, right? People in my shoes, you know, 16-year-old gay boys now, mm. maybe don't have to, I mean, they still have to do the whole identity formation thing, but maybe they don't have to feel so limited by the, these problematic representations that we had when we were younger. The identity that you seem to have now is the guy who's going to make the world a more fair place, and you're going to look after people, and you're going to protect people. Yeah, absolutely, and that's, that, that, that's all I want to do, and I'm, I'm very fortunate that I get to do that. Um, and so I don't have to be the the um, the man in a dress on top of an RV 
in a shoe, mm-hmm. although that is a fantastic scene. <laughs> From um, Priscilla, yeah. You, you know, I was at um, Applebee's just the other night, and I noticed, as as often, there there was a gay server there, right? Well, when I was growing up, at least the way it felt to me, was even in Denver, you had two career paths. You could be a server, or you could be a hairstylist, right? And, and, and those were kind of like... So I was a server, because... Isn't going to be good at cutting people's hair, um, and those were kind of like the, or you could work at a gay bar, I guess. Those were the career paths that were open. You know, those were the identities that that gay people were allowed to have, and it, it's not like that anymore. Um, and that's a great thing. Where can people find more information about the uh, ending ex gay therapy? Well, if people want, they can visit the National Center for Lesbian Rights uh, at nclrights.org forward slash born perfect. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center is also doing work on this, and there's an exciting case, a consumer fraud case, going to trial next week. Um, and NCLR and SPLC uh, work together on these issues. Fantastic. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Ryan for joining me. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to everybody who makes the Sewers of Paris possible on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash mattbound to support the podcast and get backer rewards like weekly bonus videos and a care pack in the mail. Check out my new book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, for a history of queer characters on American sitcoms. Visit my YouTube channel for stories from behind the scenes of iconic pop culture. Join me for weekly live streams every Sunday on Twitch. And keep up with even more of my work through my weekly newsletter. You can find all that and more at mattbound.com. The theme song for The Sous of Paris is Parisian from filmmusic.io by Kevin McLeod of contact.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. And until next time, croissant. <laughs>